0: This is 1 Corinthians 14, starting in verse 20. Hear the word of the Lord. Brothers, do not be children in your thinking, be infants in evil, but in your thinking be mature. In the law it is written, by people of strange tongues and by the lips of foreigners will I speak to this people, and even then they will not listen to me, says the Lord. Thus, tongues are a sign not for believers, but for unbelievers, while prophecy is a sign not for unbelievers, but for believers. If, therefore, the whole church comes together and all speak in tongues, and outsiders or unbelievers enter, will they not say that you are out of your minds? But if all prophesy and an unbeliever or outsider enters, he is convicted by all. He is called to account by all. The secrets of his heart are disclosed. And so falling on his face, he will worship God and declare that God is really among us. Let's pray together. Gracious Father in heaven, we praise you that you are God who changes lives. That you know, as this text says, the secrets of our hearts. And you welcome us with the good news of the gospel. We pray for your Holy Spirit to come and be our teacher now. Give us ears to hear the words that you would speak to us. From this passage in 1 Corinthians, we open our hearts, our minds to you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, today we are talking about a, a phenomenon that has been a, a deeply significant part of the Christian experience throughout history. And this uh, passage, section of 1 Corinthians that we've been studying all summer from 1 Corinthians chapter 11 to 1 Corinthians chapter 14 is one of the most ancient glimpses that we have into what worship looked like in the ancient church in the first century, the first Christians. What did it look like when they came together to worship? And it mentions all kinds of things about Praying together, prophecy prophecy would happen in the worship service. It talks about the Lord's Supper in chapter 11. It it talks about the singing of hymns and the teaching of lessons. Many of the things that we do together here in our worship service every Sunday morning. But in this paragraph toward the end of this whole section, we see that the Apostle Paul, who wrote this letter to the Corinthian church, had an expectation that during the gathering of all the Christians that happened on the Lord's Day, that there were a number of people mixed in who weren't Christians and that people were welcomed in. that He calls them outsiders or unbelievers. There were all kinds of people he was expecting that would be in the worship service just listening and saying, well, you know, what are these people talking about? They believe in God, they believe in Jesus, they believe in the Bible. What do, what do they have to say? And they would just listen in and he would say that some of those people as they were sitting in these gatherings would have an experience that he describes in verse 24 this way. But if all prophecy and an unbeliever and outsider enters, he is convicted by all, he is called to account by all, the secrets of his heart are disclosed, and so falling on his face, he will worship God and declare that God is really among you. There's this life-changing experience that happens during the worship service. a conversion where someone turns away from being their own God and turns to begin worshiping, surrendering, To God who's their creator. And of course, this is an important topic for us as a community because our hope here is that this would be a place of life transformation where people's lives are transformed. And so in order for this to be that kind of place, to have that kind of transformation happen here, we have to understand two things that Paul explains in this passage. That's what we're going to talk about this morning. He answers these two questions what is a community of conversion? What, what are the elements of a community like, that make a community a place where people come and their lives are changed? They have the experience described here. And then second, what is the experience of a conversion? When someone has this experience, what are the elements that go into that? And both of these are important questions for us, and Paul, I think, gives profound answers in this text. So two questions this morning. The first is this. What is a community of conversion? What is it like? And this is really interesting that uh, this passage, you know, Paul is talking about a life being transformed, but he doesn't talk to the people whose lives are being transformed. He talks, about, talks to everyone else who's in the room and what they're doing. And he says that you need to be a certain kind of community. And if you're not this kind of community, you can not expect that this this kind of transformation won't happen. The unbelievers or the outsiders, the new people, the visitors, will just leave because they don't feel like they belong. So what are the qualities of a community where conversions happen? And there are two qualities that I want to highlight in this passage. First, it's a thinking community. You see that there. In verse 20, brothers, do not be children in your thinking. Be infants in evil, but in your thinking be mature. Now, if you were here last week, you know that this passage comes right after another section in 1 Corinthians 14, where uh, Paul is comparing the benefits of two things of prophesying. Prophesying was when someone would get up and speak just a clear word of about who God is, and what God is doing in the world, and who Jesus is, and everyone can understand it. And then there was another phenomenon that happened in the early church called tongues. The Holy Spirit would give to some people, and tongues could be someone speaking a human language, you know, like they're speaking Mandarin, or they're speaking, you know, German, and they had the ability to speak in all other kinds of languages, or quite possibly, Paul also mentions the tongues of angels, which you know, that apparently angels have languages, you know, some of you may have never thought of that, that angels need to speak to one another, and what language are they speaking? It's probably not English. They're, they have some language, and angels have a culture to them, and so some people have this ability where they would speak in, in these languages, and um, it, it was kind of a mystical wonder that they would have but it was often very self-serving because they'd be speaking, they would be having this experience, but no one understood what they were talking about. And so it only served them unless there was an interpreter. So it's kind of like, you know, some of you maybe have had a Catholic upbringing in the Catholic Church for many years. And even to this day, some churches, they all, the whole worship service was done in Latin. And no one in the worship service understood Latin. It was only the priest who understood. And so they couldn't. They didn't know what the priest was talking about. They didn't know what the liturgy was saying. They had no understanding. And so what Paul is saying is that being mature means that we should be thoughtful about how what we're doing in the worship service affects others, especially those who are visiting. And then the Apostle Paul does something puzzling in this passage He quotes Isaiah chapter 28. You see that there in verse 21, where it says, In the law it is written. This is a a quote from Isaiah. Isaiah was written 800 years before Paul was writing in the 8th century uh, uh, B.C. And Isaiah was writing to the northern kingdom in Israel, who during that 8th century B.C. was invaded by the Assyrians. The Assyrians were the big superpower of the ancient Near East in the 8th century. And the sins that the northern kingdom was doing in the 8th century are the exact same sins that are described in 1 Corinthians 11 through 14. So, for example, in Isaiah 28, it says that they were getting drunk at their religious meals. In the Corinthians, it says we're getting drunk at the Lord's Supper. And then it says in Isaiah 28 that they despised prophecy. And, you know, they didn't listen to the words of the prophets. That's the same with the Corinthians. The Corinthians want to speak in tongues, but they don't want to listen to the, word, the clear words of the prophets. And, um, and so Isaiah is describing in Isaiah 28 the judgment that would come upon the Israelites in terms of the foreign language that they would hear from the Assyrians. So when they heard the Assyrians talking to them, that's what's being described in verse 21 where it says, by people of strange tongues and by the lips of foreigners, I will speak to this people. And even then they will not listen to me, says the Lord. Tongues, which is the foreign language of the Assyrians, were a judgment against the unfaithful Israel. And so that's why Paul says in verse 22, thus... Tongues are, not a sign, are a sign not for believers, but for unbelievers. Tongues is a sign of judgment against those who don't believe. So Paul sees some kind of parallel between the Israelites in the 8th century in the northern kingdom and the Corinthian church. And what Paul is saying is that you need to be a thinking community. You need to reason through all this. Some of you are like, okay, I'm trying to track with the northern kingdom. Tongues make an outsider feel like they don't fit here. When you speak in a language that no one understands and people say, I don't belong here. You know, it's like when you're visiting another country and you don't know the language and everyone's at dinner and they're talking and everyone's laughing and you're like, well, they're probably laughing at me. I don't, I'm not in on the joke. And you get me home, right? I get me to a place where people talk, speak my language. Some of you feel that way here. Maybe you've moved here from, from another country and you say, I never quite feel like I, I fit in. And uh, what tongues are is it's communicating to people that they're outsiders and therefore that God's judgment is upon them. That's not the message of the gospel. Paul is saying the message of the gospel is these people are being welcomed in to be embraced by Christ. And so to be a place where conversions are happening, you need to reason through this. What are we saying through our words? Do people feel like they're welcomed in here? How will we... You know, how are we communicating p- to people that there is a place for them here? And the way that we do that is the second thing you see in this, about being a, a community of conversion. Not only that you're thinking, reasoning through this, but also is it being an accommodating community. And what's fascinating about this passage, look at what it says in verse 23. Paul says, If therefore a whole church comes together and all speak in tongues, And outsiders or unbelievers enter, will they not say that you are out of your minds? Paul is saying that as a church, you have to think about, you should make decisions about the way you worship. Because if you communicate in a certain way, people will come in and say, these people are weird. These people are crazy. And if what you're doing makes people say, we think you're crazy, and they leave because I don't understand what you're saying, then you should think about what you're communicating, which is a remarkable thing. You think about the God of the whole universe, the creator of all things, would modify things in his worship service so that people who don't even believe in him will be able to engage and understand what's happening. What a gentleness! What a love! That God says, "I want people here," and what that mean, um, And that's what it means to be an accommodating community. What does that mean for our church? Some of you say, you know, I've been here a long time. I've never heard any speaking in tongues. We don't speak in tongues uh, during our our worship services at church. Um, Well, speaking in tongues is not the only kind of language that makes someone feel like I don't belong here. So, you know, for example, we're a Reformed Presbyterian church. There's all kinds of language that we use in Reformed Presbyterian church that certain people know what it means. Other people don't know what it means, you know. Even things like evangelicals say, have you been saved? Are you reformed? Do you know what the Westminster Confession of Faith is? Some of you may say, I I don't know what what those words mean. And it doesn't mean you shouldn't use those words. It means that, you know, Paul says you need an interpretation. They need to be explained. You don't just assume that we all know what each other are talking about. Because all of these words can be a kind of tribal language that says there's certain insiders who know these technical terms. And if someone's visiting, and maybe that's you, and you visit and you hear these technical terms, you say, wow, these people all got a language they speak. I don't know the language. They must be a little tribe, and I don't belong here. Is that what we want to communicate? Being an accommodating community has to do with how we speak. And by the way, I should say, You know, here at this church, whenever a new person comes into our church and I meet someone new, my assumption is this person has never walked into a church before in their life. You know, I I didn't grow up in the church, and my whole... Adolescents and childhood, I saw churches, and I was like, I don't know what they're doing in there. It's something weird. And it would have been scary for me to walk in. I'm afraid I'm going to do something wrong. I clearly don't belong here. And I'm assuming any person I meet, I'm not going to assume that they know what our church is about. They know what a liturgy is. They don't know anything that we're doing. And that communicates by saying that and treating someone that way and not speaking in a tribal language, speaking in plain, normal Bellingham language, it communicates to someone, I might have a place here. I might belong here. If we want to be a community where transformation happens, we have to have that mentality of accommodating the visitor. God has that mentality. Now, we have to be careful, though, what we mean by that. There are other places in Scripture where uh, it says that we should only do things in worship that God clearly commands that we should be doing. This is God's worship service. He tells us what we should be doing in worship. We shouldn't just be making stuff up. And I actually, you know, a generation ago in the 1980s, there was an evangelical group called the Barna Group that does all kinds of polling to learn about, you know, religious trends in American Christianity. And they saw that there was a decline in church membership. And so they went and they asked all the people in neighborhoods. they say, you know, why don't you go to church? And people would say, well, you know, this sermon's boring and I don't like the music and I don't understand what they're doing. I'd rather spend my Sunday morning doing something else. So there's a whole movement of churches that said we need to change our worship service to attract those people who don't want to be at church so that they'll want to be at church. And so there's, for decades, there was, these churches changed things. Now, what ended up happening is they found decades later that many of the people that did come to the churches really didn't learn a lot of the fundamentals about what it means to be a Christian. And later, there was another guy who does similar polling. His name's Tom Rainer. He said, you know, the Barna Group was asking the wrong people the question. They shouldn't be asking people who don't go to church why they don't go to church. He should be a- asking people who didn't go to church But now do go to church and have had a life changing transformation and now been in a church for three years and are actively serving and involved in a family. What was it about the church that brought you there? And when they did that survey, the answers were totally different. Number one, people said the Bible was taught clearly in a way that I could understand. (laughs) Number two, the church had clear convictions that they communicated and they stood by their convictions. And number three was that the church was a welcoming and loving place where I felt brought in. It's basically exactly what Paul is saying here prophecy, teach plainly and clearly in a way that people understand the gospel, and be welcoming and loving to visitors. And when you are that kind of community, an accommodating community, uh, it doesn't mean trying to entertain people who really don't want to be at church. It really just means speaking the gospel in a plain language that anyone can understand. And when a church communicates in that way, plain, accessible, people's lives are changed. And that's what our hope for our church is, okay? So the first thing about it is the context in which conversion happens is a place that does what it can to remove unnecessary obstacles to people hearing the plain message of the gospel and by thinking about what they're doing, accommodating the language to, to make it accessible, understandable to an outsider, to a visitor, someone who's not a Christian. There's a second part of this passage, though. Is that it doesn't just describe the kind of kind of community where conversion happens, but it also second says what the experience of conversion is. What does it look like when a person experiences a conversion? And before I explain that, let me just make one caveat. Um, you know, this passage describes someone having a really powerful transformation, right? Their secrets of their hearts are, are opened, and they fall down, and they worship God. And um, it's a conversion moment. And one of the mistakes that's happened in the American church over, the, really, the last 300 years is there has been a tendency to say that every Christian needs to have an experience like this. You know, there was the revival movements that, you know, for the, throughout the, uh, th- the at, were, were the founding of American Christianity, and that every Christian should be able to name the moment when they went from darkness to light. Their life was transformed. That's simply not the case. You know, many of you... Maybe you grew up in the church, and you say, I don't remember a time when I didn't believe in Jesus and call on his name. And uh, I, don't, I can't tell you the moment that I became a Christian. I don't have a dramatic story like that. I don't think the Bible expects you to. And also, it's just not the same for everyone. I mean, for some of you, you might say, you know, it was a long period of learning about Christianity. I'm not, I gradually came into the church. I started listening to sermons. I met some Christians. Maybe it was a two-year process, and it wasn't an all of a sudden event like this. That's okay. I don't think the Bible says all of us need to have an experience like this, but we should, what I will say is this. I do think that in the worship service, When God's word is announced in the presence of God's people, when it is communicated clearly and in a way that anyone can understand, it has the power to transform people. It may happen to you. And if it did happen to you, what would you experience? Two things I want to highlight from this passage. First, you would experience a conviction of your sin. And you see that there in verse 24 where it says, But if all prophesy, they speak a clear, plain word to everyone, and an unbeliever or outsider enters, he is convicted by all, he is called to count by all, the secrets of his heart are disclosed. What Paul is describing is the Holy Spirit convicting a person's heart of sin. And the beginning of a conversion the beginning of any process of transformation always has to begin with someone coming to terms with the fact, I'm lost. I'm lost without God. There is a mess in my inner life, in my character, and it's a mess that I cannot figure out myself. That has to be, that's the beginning of any process of transformation, right? If you go to AA, the first thing you need to admit is I'm an alcoholic, I have a problem. And until that happens... Christianity, or Jesus, will not make any sense to you, right? Jesus says, I did not come to call the righteous, but to call sinners, to save sinners. That's why Jesus came. And Christianity does not, Jesus does not make sense until we realize there is a darkness inside of us that is far blacker than anyone knows, but God knows God sees the selfishness, the envy, the whole web of lustful desires, the competitiveness, the desire to be better than other people, the bitter grudges we hold against others, the anger and we live in a, a self esteem culture that and a self esteem culture is re- recognized how Devastating shame is in our lives. And we say, you know, if you have shame in your life, it is just going to wear you down. It's going to be a weight that you carry around with you. But a self-esteem culture says the way to deal with shame is by never having a thought, bad thought about ourselves. And Christianity says that is utterly disastrous. To never be honest, we're lying to ourselves. You know, all of us have worked with someone who will never admit they're wrong. You know... <laughs> I was working, you know, or living with someone who'll never admit that they're wrong. And imagine we do that with God, that we would never admit that we have wronged God, that we are wrong. The way to deal with shame is not to never say anything bad about ourselves, but is to bring our shame out of hiding and to admit that you and I are way worse people than we ever dared, imagine, and to let Jesus Christ wash and embrace us as sinners. You cannot experience Jesus' love and grace in your life unless you are first a sinner because he came to show grace to sinners. And so first, the experience of conversion will always begin with the Holy Spirit revealing to us the true nature of our hearts, the darkness in our own hearts. But conversion is not about you being beat up about how bad you are. The second part of experience, you will experience worship toward God. And you see that in verse, the second part of verse 25. And so falling on his face, he will worship God and declare that God is really among you. Worship. And the thing to understand, you know, if you're here and you'd say, I'm one of those visitors he's describing, an outsider, unbeliever, I'm coming to sit and listen in on what's happening. The thing to understand is that everyone worships Something. Everyone has something that they devote themselves to. Everyone has something that's their God. And uh, it is the thing that we dream about. It's the thing we practice so hard for. The thing we spend our money on most easily. The thing we talk about often. It's the thing that we look to say, if I have that, I know that I'm someone. If I have that, I know that I have a good life. Whatever that thing is, that's our true God. It could be your family, your job your boyfriend or girlfriend, your recreation, your music or art. It could be a Christian ministry. And when you, we have been convicted of our sin and have been embraced by Jesus, we realize that all these other false gods fail us and there is one God we were made to worship, our creator. And conversion is about coming home to him. It's about a refusal to be my own God and say it's a surrender, an acknowledgement that the God who made me is my true king. And while all those other false gods enslave us and control our lives, this God is a loving father who sets us free. And, you know, you'll notice what Paul says in the end of this passage that the person in their conversion will say that God is really among you. God is really among us. And when your life is changed and you have a new life and there's a, you know, a transformation, it's never something that happens alone. It's not an individual experience. God brings you into a community of other people who are experiencing that same transformation and we are being transformed together. And so that's what the experience of conversion is. Two simple things. A conviction of sin that leads us to the grace that is in Jesus and a turning away from our false gods to worship the one true God. Now, you may hear that and say, what kind of person does that happen to? You know, wow, that's powerful. The secrets of their hearts are revealed, you know, who they really are, and their eyes are open to see God is really in our midst. What kind of person does that, maybe it's a really spiritual person. Maybe it's a really intellectual person. But what do we know about the person in this passage that it happened to? What are they like? Well, Paul describes them as outsiders and unbelievers. There are people who feel alone. They feel like outcasts. They don't have a family. And there are people who struggle with doubt, struggle to believe that a God, a father, could really love them. And also, they have secrets in their hearts. There are people who probably have shameful things in their past that they think would disqualify them from walking with God. And the God of the Bible says, I want them here. I want them to hear about the grace that I offer them in Jesus Christ. And I want them to be my people. These are the exact people who flock to Jesus during his life on earth. The outcast, the shamed, the sinful, the lost. So if that is you today, I invite you to see your sin. I invite you to be embraced by Jesus and his grace. And to fall down and worship the God who made you for Himself. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we praise you that this is the story of your word, that those who are far off, those of us born, with hearts rebellious against You, that You have sought after, You have called us to Yourself. And we pray that this would be a place where people would come and hear plainly about the grace that is in Jesus, and that as sinners we would be washed, welcomed. I pray for those who are here who have not known that grace. And I pray for you to gently walk with them. Show them the truths about their own hearts, the secrets in their hearts. And also show them that, you, that Jesus is a friend to sinners. And we pray that through the years of this church, we would experience transformation and we'd get to watch many others experience transformation in our midst. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.